You are listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. You ever been caught in a lie? Um, yeah, one time I was at Papa's Burgers with mom and some of her friends. Yeah. And I was uh, fidgeting with a spoon underneath the table. And I was just messing around, like not really thinking about what I was doing. Mom looks over to me and she goes, you bent that spoon. Oh. And without looking at it, I said, no, I didn't. And she goes, yes, you did. And I pulled the spoon up from underneath the table <laughs> in a 90 degree angle. Oh, no. And and I look at it. I look at her. I look back at the spoon. And I go, no, I didn't. <laughs> just just bold. Just go yeah. in. It. Yeah. Dive in. Yeah. I was I was scared. I was nervous what she was going to what she was going to do. Oh, I remember my my roommate in college had a mother that was a very stern and, you know, very, you know. Good, good mom, but you know, very you know, no nonsense type type mom. And so this this guy, my friend, would go home every weekend and see his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. So he'd drive from College Station back back to Dallas to see his girlfriend. Now this this was not doing anything for his grades at all. You know, no. So he was not doing well. Let's say uh, they, the school was probably not going to invite him back next semester. And so he, <laughs> the mom calls one weekend. And you know, hey, you know, we're you know, we're so so, and I'm like, oh yeah, I don't know. Like, you know, I knew he was in Dallas. Yeah, and she, without skipping a beat, she's like, "Don't lie to me." I was like, Jeez. "Oh," and well, she so knew I, immediately. Oh, she knew immediately. And so the funny thing was, is so I I tell him this was before cell phones. I, I couldn't get a hold of him until he got back. Um, yeah, until Monday, Monday morning night, or whenever Monday he morning. comes back. And I said, man. Your mom called. He goes, oh, okay. I said, no, 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 no. When I told her I didn't know where she you were, she said, don't lie to me. I said, she knew somehow that you weren't here. I said, it's bad. You, you got to deal with this. And so he did, and he gets in all kinds of trouble. And so it turns out they knew he was in, you know, he was in Dallas. And they never told him how. He goes, like, how did you know I was in Dallas? Because he was very careful. He'd go over to his yeah, girlfriend's yeah, house. Yeah. He'd pull his car in the garage, shut the garage door, the yeah. whole thing. And turns out his dad had gone to the bank, cash a check, gets up to the teller. And his dad, he was one of those, jun- you know, ju- they had the same name. Uh-huh. And so the teller says, oh, your son was just in. <laughs> so the teller ratted him out. They never told him. I'm like, he was an adult until they told him that. He was, he was like 40 before they told him. Was <laughs> just caught in the lie. That's funny. Yeah, so I was wondering if she's on the phone, how could she read your body language? But she didn't have to. She already knew she the, knew, she knew. knew the answer. But speaking of body language, our guest today is an expert. You may remember Jeff Lanza from episode 124, deciding to protect your business from cybercrime. Jeff was an FBI special agent for over 20 years, during which he investigated cybercrime, organized crime, human trafficking, and terrorism. Jeff has lectured at Harvard and Princeton written two critically acclaimed books. He's appeared on the Today Show, Good Morning America, and Fox, where he talks about the growing threat of cybercrime in today's everyday life. We talked a lot about body language, a lot about the the learnings that he had in the FBI, how to read body language, how to tell when people are lying to you. Um, 
We got into it about gambling. Uh, we talked about the some really crazy stories that Jeff had um, it, during his, uh, you know, crime busting days. And uh, I think this overall an entertaining episode. So stick around. You'll learn something. You'll be able to tell when your kids are lying to you about visiting their girlfriend. Uh, and you'll have a little bit of fun. So I'm Sanger Smith, as always, with my dad, Sean Smith. This is Decidedly. Good morning, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. Good morning, guys. How are you today? Good. It's, I, you know, a great day. I was thinking of, did you see the Tucker Carlson, uh, Vladimir Putin interview? You know, I was too worried about the Chiefs and the, and the Super Bowl because I'm in Kansas City, you know, so I, I didn't pay attention to world news. stuff. <laughs> so I'll... I'll fill you in on an interesting part. This is not necessarily FBI related, but it's like intelligence related. Yeah, dude. So Tucker Carlson asks uh, Putin, he goes, hey, um, so who blew up the Nord Stream 2 pipeline? And Putin goes, huh, you did. And Tucker's like, oh, haha. Like, obviously I was busy that day. And Putin goes, yeah, yeah, not you, but the CIA. And I know you applied for the CIA. You didn't get in, but you know the CIA did it. And Tucker Carlson just stared at him, didn't react. Like, And it was almost as if to say, like, how the hell do you know that I applied to the CIA? Yeah. And so I thought, um, I thought of you when I saw that because I'm like, these agencies have... Oh, what a move just to set somebody on their heels right out of the just gate. Just to let them know, dude, I got information that you don't know about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that'll set him back a little bit. And then, you know, t- then he's off balance. And then the interview kind of goes from there, right? <laughs> if you haven't watched it, it was fascinating. Yeah. Um, every time uh, Tucker asked Putin a question, Putin would start with, well, um, actually in the year 1472. Yeah. <laughs> he was just filibustering. <laughs> just had all types of, you know, Russian history to pull out of his pocket. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, Jeff, last time we talked on episode 124, we we talked about your background and how you got into the FBI and how you deal yeah. with cybersecurity. But what I was curious about, kind of along the lines of what Sanger was talking about, is that part of what you did at the FBI was dealing with communication styles, interrogations, interviews, and those types of things. How did you get to that part of the work? Because that's very different from the cybersecurity work. Yeah, well, it's part of the everyday training and initial initial training with uh, at the FBI Training Academy because you know most of the information that the FBI gets from people in doing investigations is talking to the people and doing interviewing. It's not it, it's not just about you know interrogation, getting people to confess. I mean, we're talking to witnesses, we're talking to people who just know about a crime, and uh, so interviewing skills are really important. And so those are taught at the FBI Training Academy, and part of that is body language because it's not just the words that come out of your mouth, right? It's also what you're doing when those words are coming out. And that helps uh, a, a, a trained person understand if, you know, maybe uh, you're telling the truth or not telling the truth, or maybe you're holding something back. Uh, and uh, is it is the body language consistent with the, with the, with the words? And if there's an inconsistency, you always 
go to the body language as the default because you can't control your body language as much as you can control your words. So uh, those are the things that we learn at the FBI Training Academy. So what, what type of body, because it seems like you would be able to control the large body movement. You know, whether I'm going to slouch over or look at you in the eye or sit up straight or, you know, whatever, cross my legs, uncross my legs, all these types of things. What are the what are the tells or what are the things that a body language would be conveying okay. yeah. that would be sure. different from what the language would be conveying? Okay, so, the, you know, there's the obvious things that someone may try to control, but re- remember... Uh, Sean, a lot of it is is subconscious, right? We do things without even realizing we're doing it. I'm using my hands right now. I'm not doing that on purpose. That's just the way I talk, right? I use my hands to talk. That's subconscious. All right, so let's look at a couple of basic things. You know, this thing right here, the crossed arms. Everybody knows you're trying potentially trying to hide something. You're not opening up to the person, and uh, or you could just be cold, or maybe you're just comfortable like that. You know, so but so you take things in context. You take things in sequence. But here's one that you may not know that's more subconscious than crossing your arms, crossing your legs, and trying to act or put your body in a certain way. Uh, there's this movement. Um, so I could, I'll could, i say something to you. And uh, yeah, you know, I just, uh, I just uh, uh, I shot a hole in one yesterday at, uh, at the golf course here in town. And uh, so I don't notice that I just did that. I just wiped that lie right, right. off my face. C- covering right? your mouth with your hand. Kind covering of thing. your yeah. mouth is one thing, but also going to the mouth at the time or right after you make that statement. Uh, it's like, you know, no one feels comfortable lying, right? I mean, we're taught as a young person, you don't lie. And when we have, when we do lie, we get this this visceral reaction that lie detectors measure, actually. You know, you're, you're, you start to sweat a little bit more, your blood your blood pressure changes. Uh, other things happen that, that, that machines can measure. So if you're not hooked up to a machine, one of the things we do a lot when we lie is we're not comfortable with a lie unless we're a sociopath, and that's totally different. If you're a sociopath, you don't care about lying. You don't get those reactions. But if you're a normal person like we all are and I lie, I may go like this. Just I'm, I'm wiping that lie off my face, wiping it out of my lips because I just lied. I'm not comfortable about that. I have noticed uh, – well, you tell me if this is, this is universal or not. Mm-hmm. I have noticed that if I'm in a group and I want somebody to stop talking, they're just talking and – you know, spouting a bunch of crap or something, that I'll end up covering my mouth. Yeah. You know, as if to say, hey, stop it. Stop talking. And I, I've become aware that I, I've started doing that. Is that a natural thing? I mean, do other people do that? Have you seen that? Yeah, I, I haven't seen people do that. You you, th- you did that subconsciously or or as a, as a way? Yeah, well, I became aware that I was doing it every time I was wanting somebody else to stop. Yeah. I started covering my mouth. Yeah. Um. And I, what I do is I put my finger straight up and I put it right in front of my lips and I go like this. Does that work? Yeah. You're kind of like, I guess that's better than putting your finger on their mouth. (laughs) I don't know. know, My, my wife, when she wants me to shut up, she will put her finger on my mouth. She goes, just, just stop talking. (laughs) Stop talking. You know? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know to answer your question. I've never seen people do that in a in a social setting. I tell you what you you can look for in social settings. Let's say you're at a cocktail party or something. You're all just standing around. And you got two or three people, and someone's talking. Look at their feet because our feet are so far away from our brain that we don't know exactly what they're doing part of the time. But they do uh, point in the direction that you want to go next. So if someone's got their feet pointed directly at you, they want to be there. They're open to you. They're pointing in your direction. If you see their foot pointing like towards the door, 
uh, they, they want to take that next step away from you. So that's just and the people would get out of there. Yeah, right. Did you use this type of, you know, that's, you said that's early training. Mm-hmm. Were you able to apply that training when you were dealing with um, organized tri- crime interrogations? And I know you did some work with sex trafficking, breaking yeah. up those organized rings. How were you able to apply this, this type of information there? Well, generally when you're interviewing people, you're, you, you know, you, again, it's not just about telling when they're lying, trying to figure out if they're lying or not. It's also about, uh, about, you know, seeing if their body language is consistent with the words coming out of your mouth, out of their mouth, and also getting them to open up a little bit. So, a common technique that people use in interviews, uh, police officers and and other law enforcement uh, officers at the federal level, we're trained to when you're doing an interview, is someone's about to say something, you you want to get kind of close to them a little bit, you know, really close, open up, open stance. And just open up those lines of communication. And another thing that's really important too is if someone is uh, makes and answers a question, they say uh, whatever, yes, no, whatever else they might say. You think there's more coming, right? You think there's more to it. You don't say anything. You just kind of look at them and you nod a little bit. You nod. Maybe you just tilt your head showing you're interested in what's coming next. And they think they haven't completed the statement. They think there's more that you're expecting. So they're more likely to pass that information out. It's called the, I, I like to call it the, the, uh, the, the, just that silent moment, right? Where you're just getting people to, to, uh, you know, open up a little bit more. I'll give you, I'll give you an example, not law, not law enforcement setting. All right. So this guy, uh, had, a, it was his house burnt down, um, in, uh, in Kansas city. A reporter with a radio station hears that the fire that the fire department is responding to this fire to house. Fortunately, the guy wasn't hurt. He's outside his house. The reporter rolls up there, puts a mic in the guy's face, and he says, uh, uh, "You know what happened here?" And the guy goes, "Can't you see my house burned down?" He goes, "Yeah, I know, I know, but how did it start?" And he goes, "Cigarette." And the reporter didn't ask another question. He just kind of looked at him and looked at him and uh, held the mic there a little bit more. And he goes, yeah, I, 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 I started the fire with a cigarette. I fell asleep in my chair with a bottle of Jim Bean in my hand. Uh, and so that's how the fire started. And he wouldn't have gotten that information unless he just waited and looked at him for about four seconds. And by the way, he said Jim Bean. The actual booze is Jim Bean, B-E-A-M. <laughs> if you're going to burn your house Cheap down knockoff. and booze is responsible, at least get the name of the booze uh, correct. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, it's that <laughs> delay uh, that we use to, uh, and we use it with kids. Uh, you know, you look at a kid, and say, hey, "What happened here?" And they say, "I don't know." You don't, you don't ask anymore. You just look at them, and they'll start talking. And so that's used in in uh, all sorts of uh, interview settings as well. How Thank often you. do you see this, uh, like in your daily life? How often are you using your your body language expertise in trips to the grocery store, talking with friends, et cetera? You know, people think I do you know, speeches, uh, uh, you know, on a regular basis on different topics. And and uh, uh, when I do the body language talk, people come up to me and say, I bet you were watching me when, you know, a little while ago. And I don't do that. I don't use it in everyday life. Why? It takes a lot of energy. I'm not looking at people at a grocery store or cashier. I'm not looking at people and looking at the body language unless it's important to me at that time. You know, if I want if someone's a threat to me. 
or or whether they're kidding or whether they're serious or something else that I need to know for a particular purpose, then I'll pay attention to that. But on a routine daily basis, I'm not looking at people's body language, really, using up that energy. But are there times where you use it in a in a non-work setting that you're thankful you know about it? Uh, well, maybe when I was single and I was meeting women and maybe... <laughs> I was like, I didn't know if they liked me or not, or should I move on to something else or, or pay more attention to this person? Yeah. I would just start with the assumption they don't, you know, that's how, that was my move. When they're <laughs> sticking both hands out like this and they're yeah. waving them in front of you when you come up, right. that means they're not, they're not yet warm to the they're, idea. They're, their feet were the, just pointing towards the door. They were it, moving towards the door. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I use it all the time. I use it all the time when I'm giving, when I'm giving speeches. Um, now when I do webinars, I can't, you can't see the audience. Um, uh, and if you do see the audience, usually they're looking at the camera like this and trying to figure out, you know, on their computer, what button to press. Yeah. Or, they're trying to figure out how to turn off the cat filter. On so, Zoom. so you, you talked about proximity, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in communication, you talked about sort of pulling up close to somebody. And I, I see this a lot on, uh, my wife watches these murder shows all the, it's nonstop murder shows at our house. And, you know, there's always that video, the, you know, from the, the top corner of the interrogation room where the, you know, and the officer sort of pulls his chair up to the, the suspect and he gets knee to knee with him and says, you know, I know you did it. It's okay. You know, we understand why you would do it, but just, you just got to say, you know, unburden yourself, you know, try to get, confess. And I, I wonder if that is, it's got to be purposeful to like bring right up into somebody, uh, somebody's personal space. But for me, it would seem like that would shut somebody down. Like if somebody's right up on you, yeah, they would close down. But that, but that must not be the case. Well, see, you're talking about an interrogation phase, and that's different than an interview phase. So, in an interview phase, okay, you're just gathering information, right? You, you, you may be, you may think this person committed the crime, but you're still on that gathering, gathering information uh, part of that, and you're not getting in their face because that's going to shut things down. You've gotten to the point where you've gotten enough information. You're absolutely 100% convinced this person committed this crime. And basically now, now you just want them to say why they committed this crime. And so the whole structure of the interview changes. And that's when you get real close to them. That's when you want them to be uncomfortable because now you're looking for that admission. And that's a whole different thing uh, and uh, than just trying to get information. So yeah, you are getting close. You are getting in their face. And basically you're getting- So are you, are you saying that you if it, you are- if you are intentionally making someone uncomfortable, it is likely that they'll reveal something they don't want to reveal or hadn't intended to reveal because they're at a high stress point. They just want the thing to be over at that point, and they're more likely to tell you what really happened at that point in time if you're making them feel uncomfortable. Um, now, with television shows, is not always going to be, uh, you know, consistent with reality. But but if they do right. their research and they show those interviews properly, yeah, I mean, you're in an interrogation stage. It's not. It's not. It's not if you did it, it's why you did it, and and we're gonna we're gonna help you get that reason. Now you didn't you didn't kill that person because you just wanted to commit a murder. There's a reason why you pulled that trigger, isn't that true? You know that kind of stuff, and that's when you right. get close to him. You say, "Hey, man, I, I, all right, yeah, you're right, you're right, man. He was doing this, and that's why you know that that kind of thing." You did some work with some television shows. What type of information were they wanting from you with your background that might help them with their you know, production. Yeah, the one in particular was uh, a movie that uh, Ang Lee uh, uh, 
was a director on uh, in one of his early movies. Now he did Brokeback Mountain, which won the Academy Award. Mm-hmm. He got the Academy Award for Best Director. Sanger's uh, favorite movie. Yeah. Anyway, before that, back in the late 1990s, he was filming a movie in Kansas City uh, called Ride with the Devil. It was about the Kansas-Missouri border wars during the Civil War and about a guy named Quantrill who raided the town of Lawrence and pretty much wiped out all the women and children, anybody who lived in Lawrence at that particular and that particular incident. Um, anyway, he wanted to know what the eyes of a terrorist looked like because he felt that Quadro was basically a terrorist uh, in conducting this act. And so he came to, to our office and he met with several people and we tried to help him. How Because some of us interviewed terrorists uh, and, and he yeah. wanted to know, you know, how do they look? And, you know, these are the type of things that directors really get into because they want things to be real. How does a terrorist look at you? You know, and so we tried to help him with that. So that was one example of uh, some concern. How does a terrorist look at you? For the movie business. And that turned out to be a a pretty good movie as well as the ones he did after that, which he won awards for. Very, very renowned director. How does a terrorist look at you? You know, what I thought, and I tried to explain to him, I don't know if this came across in the movie or not, but is they kind of just look at you like you're not even there. They just look right through you. You're not, you're not, uh, there's no human really, um, you know, connection. Um, They have a goal in mind and and an idealistic uh, uh, is that related to their, um, you know, I almost called terrorism and occupation, but is that related to their the activities that they engage in or that they're some sort of, they've, they've got to have psychopathic tendency, right? Well, I mean, you know, anybody that commits, you know, mass uh, mass homicides is, you know, yeah, it, you know, you psychopath, sociopath. The thing about, uh, you know, we, we throw those terms around a lot. There's you know, technically, I think there's a, there's a clinically there's a difference between those terms. You're more likely to run into a sociopath than a psychopath, and some people think they're the same thing. But sociopaths basically don't have empathy; just is more of a genetic yeah. explanation, and so they don't care about you. They, you know, all of us we we have feelings for how what we do, uh, how they make other people feel, right? But but sociopaths don't care about that. I can embezzle if I'm a sociopath millions of dollars from my company. I could care less. I don't even have to justify it. Because they're a bad company, I'll just say I wanted the money because I wanted the money. That's a sociopath talking, and uh, so they look at you a little differently too because they don't really care about you. Psychopaths, it's more of a, a maybe more of a condition that goes even beyond that into. Um, well, I'm getting out of my realm of expertise there, so I'm not even going to go further with that. So what was the training like as they're teaching you these concepts? How do how do they teach them? Is it in a classroom setting where they just describe, hey, when people do these things, this is what you can look out for? Are they having you observe people in different settings? Yeah, all of the above. They show videos of interviews. Um, they talked, you know, we get uh, uh, people that come in, the, the teachers that come in are, re, are, are agents, current agents that are sharing their expertise uh, over years of doing interviews, you know, from all that experience, yeah. videos of, of interviews they've done, uh, and then practice, practice scenarios too, you know, role plays, that that type of thing. Um, yeah. Are there any, uh, any significant moments that you remember from those training where you're watching certain videos, or like any famous cases that the average person would know? Um. I can't think of any specific examples that the average person would know about. Uh, so some of the things that stuck out at me, though, were just, uh, you know, this were, you know, they'd stop the video. Here they show this long interview process. It's the guy that says, I didn't do it. I didn't, I, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And then all of a sudden he gets to the point 
where he's going to confess and and he's you know he can't look can't look at the uh, interviewer in the eye anymore eye anymore he stops the video and he goes okay he's about to confess right now because he's doing this and this and then sure enough he start the video up again and he and he and he admits to this particular crime and this is a real life story i mean this isn't made up it's not a role play interesting uh, so so that type of thing i um, what was he what was he doing that was the tell to the imminent confession uh, you know, it was uh, the 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 where his eyes were pointing. He looked away from the investigator. He was starting yeah. to uh, basically just, you know, his body language. He slumped in the chair, and all his defenses went down. He was he. You got me. I'm about to tell you what I what I did. Um, body language just loosening up and lack of eye contact at that point in time. He's like looking down, and I'm I'm done. You got me. You know that kind of thing. How does how does that relate to when we're having discussions that are not you know quite as adversarial uh, with employees in uh, maybe performance reviews and they're you know maybe they're not cutting the mustard and, you know doing so well I, you know those are sometimes uncomfortable when an employee isn't meeting expectations uh, particularly I, I had a really challenging one years ago uh, I had asked this employee you know we would do these assessments. And so we had a sort of a leadership team assessment of each employee, and then we would bring them in, and I would talk with them. And the first question I would ask is ask them how they thought they were doing. And like nobody thinks they're doing poorly, apparently, you know. And so they would, you know, people would say, "Well, yeah, I think I've done really well." Everyone thinks they're an above average driver. Yeah, exactly. And you know, so I was sharing with this one person that our assessment was not at the highest level that theirs was, and it was. Uh, really, uh, really hurt them. You know, they, they, they caught them off guard, flat foot, and they start tearing up. And then I get uncomfortable. Uh, and, and I, I have found that I'm not good at being um, hiding the hiding my feelings. I'm more transparent with my feelings than what I think I am. Yeah. Uh, and so it just got uncomfortable. You know, and I, I don't, I don't like doing those things. But how do we deal with the the awkward? employee conversations in terms of communication, not just body light, but right. how do we make sure that those are effective yeah. and we're not letting the high emotions that can creep in negatively impact our ability to communicate effectively? Okay. I'll, uh, a couple of tips there. For, first of all, uh, when you do those type of things, those those employee interviews uh, and performance reviews, which are always uncomfortable, I think, and uh, you know, yeah. I've done it from both ends of the table. The table should not be between you. Your best option, I know you can't always do this in, a, in an office setting, is to not have any encumbrance between you. No no physical thing. You could be on the side of the desk. They can be on the other, on, on the adjoining side, but not one across from one another. And the reason why you do that, first of all, you don't want something between you. It just creates a barrier. Second of all, you can look at their body a little bit better. You could see if their arms are being are crossed, and that's a sign that they're being protective. You can see what their hands are doing. Are they fidgeting? Look at their feet. Uh, sometimes you see people come in an office setting and they're talking to their manager or supervisor and they take their legs and they lock them around behind and even behind the stem of the chair. They're grabbing onto that for support. You can't see that if you got a desk in front of you. If you had, if you were uh, perpendicular uh, to them, um, then you'd be, uh, be able to see those those movements. And if they had their legs like that, that's a very uncomfortable position. So that's when you say, Hey, so what's going on? What are you thinking about right now? You ask some non-threatening questions, try to reveal what's going on in their brain before you proceed because there's just too much going on in their brain that's blocking that communication. And I've always learned this too. Um, 
that if you have a poor performance and you have to review somebody, you 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 criticize the behavior, not the person. You don't make it personal. And if you make it personal, that that's going to be a big problem for you. That's things are going to get worse. You criticize the behavior. And the same thing you would do with a kid. You know, you don't say you're a bad person because because you did something wrong. You criticize what they did wrong. I know that's not you. That behavior is not acceptable. Not that you're not acceptable. That applies to adults too in a performance setting, I believe. Yeah. How often um, is it appropriate or useful at all the all out body language in that type of scenario? Hey, you're uh, you're wrapping your legs behind the chair. What's going I on? I your arms are folded. Be, uh, yeah. be comfortable. That, then you're just making him feel self-conscious about it. That's going to make it worse. Don't call out the body language. <laughs> okay. Just notice, right, the bo- notice the body language and then and then try to figure out what's going on. Ask a non-threatening question that would probably <laughs> reveal that. If you say, hey, why are you wringing your hands together like this? They're going to keep wringing their hands. I didn't realize I was doing that. And then they're really going to get nervous. Yeah. Why do, you, why do you keep covering your mouth when you say you didn't steal the petty cash fund? Yeah. Why do you keep Put your hands on the desk and tell me right now. <laughs> Yeah. So you would ignore it? Oh, not ignore it. I just wouldn't. I wouldn't call it out. Is what I'm saying. I would hear. Okay. It. Yeah. Yeah. And here's another thing. Okay. So I thought you might like this. I'm just looking down. I have some notes that I wanted to get across. Uh, uh, and one thing I I uh, I think is important to know is where people look when they lie. All right. So think about it this way. Okay, I've heard this before. Uh, oh, if you look to the right, it means one thing. Yeah. If you look to the re- left, okay, all right. In a general sense, it doesn't matter if you're right-handed, left-handed, throw that all out. It doesn't matter. Right side of your brain is creative side of the brain. Left side is the empirical side. Uh, and so if you're looking up to the right, you're making stuff up on the fly. You're using creative side of your brain. So you asked me to, to you know, a question did you uh, did you uh, see the uh, Super Bowl on Sunday? And no, I was I fell asleep because I drank too much at the party before. And yeah, I saw it. It was a great game. I'm looking up to the right. I'm trying to make up stuff, right? Um, if I look up to the left, I'm recounting memory stuff I've already implanted in my brain. Pulling that off, that indicates you're telling the truth. So up to the right, you're making stuff up. Up to the left, you're telling the truth. And you'll see that. And sometimes it's not a big up or a big up that way. It's a tiny eye movements. And uh, if you can pick up on that, you'll be able to tell whether someone's actually telling the truth or not as well. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, what is there any information on like what the margin of error is on that? Like, is it, how often is that analysis correct? Uh, there's probably a margin of error that's that's fairly high on a lot of the stuff, but it's subject to the interpretation of the person receiving it. And it, yeah. uh, it's just like a, a, the reason why polygraph exams are not admissible in court is because they are not reliable, but the reliability really depends on the person given the polygraph, how they interpret the results. And that's the same thing with just body language. So, you know, you, you talk about reliability, it really depends on how good you are at re- interpreting, interpreting those things. Uh, and that's where okay. reliability comes in. You ever had anybody lie to you at, uh, at work? No, everyone's always 100%. No, less. I mean, it, like employees or anything? Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, all the time. How did you figure it out? Uh, usually when they tell me they think I look good in my new jacket. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know? uh, can I switch gears just a little bit? I know this is kind of yeah, yeah. here. And I I wanted to share a story with you 
uh, because we just had, you know, this big, huge betting uh, uh, opportunity on the Super Bowl this past week. And uh, and I wanted to share share something with you I thought your listeners might be interested in. So when I joined the FBI back in 1988, I wanted to investigate organized crime. And I put up my hand. I said, you got any mob cases I can work? And they go, yeah, we got a wiretap on a bookie's phone. It's going on right now. And you can go uh, be part of that if you want to. So we're investigating this bookie. Now go back to 1988. Right. The only place you can bet on a sporting event in the United States of America is in the state of Nevada legally. Right now. Now, depending on the state you live in, about 25 or 26 states, you open up your app on your phone. You can bet on a game instantly. Right. And uh, so but you couldn't do that in 1988. You had to call your bookie. And some of those bookies were tied to organized crime. And we had an investigation of a certain bookie. Time to bust the bookie. So myself and an agent that was a veteran agent, we go to the bookie's house. There's another agent downtown Kansas City who's listening to the bookie's phone with the headphones in a room. We go bust the bookie. We have a search warrant. The bookie's being cooperative. He's talking to uh, my, my, my counterpart, Al. I'm at the bookie's desk. He's got all his betting lines, his scores from the day before, his list of betters, and I'm marking things as evidence. That's my role that day. It's a Sunday morning. It's September Baseball is in season. Football is in season. I'm sitting at a bookie's desk. You know, what do you think might happen next under those circumstances? <laughs> phone's ringing the off phone's the wall. Phone's ringing off the hook. I asked, I asked the veteran agent, I go, Al, what do you want me to do with the phone? He says, answer it. Now, before I tell you what happened no. next, I got to back up a little bit. I grew up in Connecticut. Uh, my dad owned a business. It was a convenience store. These guys used to come in my dad's store. When I was working for my dad in the store, they'd pick up the newspaper the New York Post usually open up to the betting lines and they would talk about what games are going to bet that day in my dad's store. Now I'm like 17 years old. I don't know anything about gambling, but I'd hear these conversations yeah. from these guys. I'm taking the Jets plus three. I'm taking the over on the 49ers. I'm taking the Yankees minus seven and a half. I hear all the lingo of gambling. As a teenager, I just learned about it that way. And that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Now, let's fast forward 15 years. <laughs> Do you see how he wiped his mouth after he said that? <laughs> now, I'm at the bookie's desk. I got my FBI Ray jacket on, big FBI yellow letters on a blue jacket. I got a gun. I have a badge. We have the search warrant. And the phone is still tapped. There's an agent still listening to the phone. It rings. My counterpart, Al, goes, answer it. I pick it up. Guy goes, who's this? Now, I tell him my real name because we're only busting the bookie, not the betters. This is not undercover. So I just tell him, I go, Jeff, he doesn't say Jeff who, he didn't say Jeff, where's my bookie? He goes, hey, Jeff, what's the line on the Chiefs today? Now, I knew how to read the lines. I remember from my dad's store and the bookie had it right there. I figured, why not tell the guy? I go, Chiefs are minus three and a half. He goes, give me 50 on the Chiefs. I go, you got it. So I take down the guy's bed. <laughs> I hang Screw this bookie's business all up. <laughs> it's still on the receiver. Literally, my hand is still on the receiver. There's an old term for you. Pick it up again as it rings. Another caller. Hey, Jeff, what's the over on the Vikings? I knew about overs and unders. Total points scored in the game. You go over or under to win your bet. He goes, what's the over under on the Vikings? I go, it's 44-45. How much you want? He goes, give me 75 on the over. I go, you got it. So I take down his bet. Now it's approaching noon central time, kickoff time in the NFL. Phone. Wait, why are you taking down the bet? Phone is ringing <laughs> off the book. I'm writing the stuff down, getting their names. <laughs> One guy calls up. He wants to do a parlay bet. Now, a parlay is a combination bet. You can do two team, three team parlays, yeah. but you got to right. win all your bets in the parlay. Then you get odds on your on your wager. 
he forgot what the odds were on a two-team parlay. So he asked me, he goes, Jeff, I want to do a two-team parlay. I forget. What's that pay? Well, I remember from my dad's store, they talked about parlays. Two-team parlay pays 12 to 5. I mean, who doesn't know that? So I ask him, I go, how much you bet? And he goes, 50. I go, pays 120. You got to win both games. He goes, all right, give me Yankees, Jets, two-team parlay. I go, you got it. So not only am I taking their bets, I'm instructing them on how to bet. There's only one person in this whole situation who's questioning the fact that some strange guy named Jeff is answering the phone taking bets. And that one person is the FBI agent on the wire downtown. He's listening to the headphones. He goes, he goes wait a second. Two agents go in there. They take out this bookie. And now some other bookie named Jeff is answering the phone. <laughs> one guy is so loose with his information, he didn't care. He goes, uh, hey, Jeff, I don't know you, but I get paid on Tuesday. Are you still paying? Well, I played along. I mean, what was I going to do? I go, yeah, yeah, don't worry, we'll pay it. So he gives me his first name, last name, but he spells it out <laughs> one letter at a time to make sure we had it right so he'd be paid on Tuesday. Mike Smith, F-M-I-T-H, 333 <laughs> Maple, M-A-P-L-E, Kansas City, Missouri, 64105. So he goes, you're still coming on Tuesday, right? I go, yeah, yeah, don't worry, Mike. We'll, we'll be there. We're coming on Tuesday. <laughs> We're definitely coming. So finally, <laughs> finally, I get a, I get a smart guy. He goes, wait a second, wait a second, Jeff. Jeff who? Well, tell him the truth. We're not undercover. We're just busting the bookie. I go, Jeff with the FBI. I expect to hear click. I didn't hear click. He didn't hang up. He starts cracking up. Jeff with the FBI. That's a good one. He hits in the bookie's phone. I love that. Jeff with the FBI. That's good. I love it. Hey, Jeff with the FBI, give me 50 on the Chiefs, will you? <laughs> <laughs> what a day. That, that was my day as an FBI a bookie, and it just tells you how loose people can be with uh, with information when uh, they don't know. Can you, can you imagine the, the bookies within earshot of all this, just going, "No, stop, guys, please." <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, so, how many of the how many of the betters did you did y'all end up busting? We didn't bust any betters. We only bust the bookie. You just left, yeah, just yeah. the bookie. We never. It, was it? Is it even worth it to follow up with them? Oh, the betters. Yeah. No, we. I mean, we had enough information. The bookie actually was part uh, of a you know ring we were trying to bust and he, he actually went to jail for a couple of years but the uh the betters none of the betters were charged with any crime at that point in time how criminal is it to i mean obviously i understand you, you're the bookie you're gonna get hit pretty hard but how how criminal is it to place bets illegally uh i mean it is it is a crime to a federal crime to use the interstate transportation of of uh, of basically over the wires is what it's called. You're using communication systems that are are go between states to place illegal wagers. But the Supreme Court said that basically, you know, that's not illegal anymore. But you have to be licensed in a state to do that and approved. So it's still illegal for a bookie to take action. But why would we want to use a bookie anyway if you can bet on FanDuel or DraftKings? Yeah, in, in your state. Now, not all states allow that. And just to show you that, I live in Kansas. So I live about a mile from the state line. In Missouri, they do not allow gambling on the apps, but people will drive over from Missouri into Kansas, park on a residential street, place their bets, and go back home into Missouri. Uh, that's how uh, specific the location is on those devices too, as you know, because wow. um, you know if you're at one foot over the line, you are in not the, a, a state that will not allow gambling. You can't bet it. So that, all that kind of stuff is going huh. on too. Are the app? Do the apps get shut off if you're in a state that doesn't yeah. allow it? Yeah, yeah, it's I mean, not shut not, off, but it'll just it, tell you you are in a state that does not allow gambling. 
Yeah, that, well, that's what I mean. Yeah. All right, so the app's going to sort of flash a yellow banner. Yeah. yeah, I mean, ask me how I know that. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> do uh, do VPNs allow people to just get get away with that? They have a very sophisticated system. They actually uh, can tell when a VPN is being used, and it, it generally blocks it. And it warns you. It says a VPN is being used to access this uh, this app. And uh, if you continue to do that, you you will be uh, you'll be blackballed. You won't be able to bet at all. Uh, Whoa! Yeah. Wow. So. Um, yeah, I know like Utah, uh, a couple of years ago, I think did the same thing with, uh, with internet porn and it's like, nope, we're done. No more. And let, maybe like, I think age verification or something. Yeah. Right. Um, so if you try to access it within Utah, you're, you, you you're going to have that same experience. And I was always curious, like, okay, well, how are they, not that I, uh, how do they know going yeah. into Utah, but yeah, how do they, how do they do that and then wouldn't a VPN just allow them to get around it? Uh, I guess not. Uh, there's a company, uh, it's called uh, 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 United States Integrity, I believe. And they actually are hired by these apps to make sure that the uh, that the betting is done correctly and it's not done in a different state, including uh, the use of VPNs. And uh, there might be other companies huh. that are involved in that too, but that's one of them that checks the integrity of betting. Uh, because the states make they can make it clear, hey, if if we don't allow it here, you can't come to our state and gamble and gamble. You're not allowed to, and uh, they don't want to lose yeah, their life to have this because you know that's that's a huge money maker. Those those uh, betting on sporting events for these companies that take those bets, um, so they don't want yeah. to lose the ability to do that. Uh, yeah, massive money maker. They're raking it in on that. They can't lose. They they can lose if they place <laughs> if they have you know one sided action. On a particular game, um, uh, they, you know, they don't lay, they can't lay it off to anybody like the old-fashioned bookie bookie did. But generally speaking, when you bet on a game, you know you're giving at least at least ten percent vig to the to the to those apps, at least, and sometimes it's even more than that. So if they get even bets on a game and they can make it that way with the lines, uh, in some cases, they're collecting 15 percent on every game, all the action. Yeah, yeah, because they can always just change the lines. Change a lot. Uh, well, that was my understanding. Not retroactively, but you know, right? If the first the act- ten bets come in and they're all for the Chiefs, they go ah, change the lines. Well, that's what happened. Now I mean, moving I mean, forward, they're not going to be the same. Yeah, San Francisco started out as a three and a half point favorite, and it moved to two and a half because uh, t- you know too many people were betting on the Chiefs. Um, so that forced some more action to San Francisco to try to even it out. Yeah. Yeah, my understanding is it's not the betting that's illegal, it's the VIG. It's the, you know, taking that percentage and setting up the house. So, you know, like you and I could bet, we could play poker Sure, for yeah, we could we go play can't. Texas Hold'em in, sure. in the garage, but it, if, you're placing, if you're playing like house money, yeah, well, then the, you have We could play for yeah. money. My, my point is that if there is yeah, a facilitator the who's taking the same thing, yeah. once the house is winning, then they have a problem with it. You can't right. take a rake. Right, and that's that applies to pools too, right? I, you know, all the all the millions yeah. and millions of dollars that are bet on pools. Um, as long as the person running the pool doesn't take a percentage, then there's no law enforcement action there uh, in terms of illegality. I haven't uh, I haven't been to any of these places, but I heard uh, about several like underground uh, casinos or they call them game rooms in uh, even just in Fort Worth. Like, oh, yeah, that's such and such bar or that place, you know, that office building. They do 
illegal gambling in there, you know, at night. Like they're everywhere. You well, wouldn't think so, but they're everywhere apparently. Yeah, it's not a. I, I have a friend who knows somebody who set up one of those businesses. Oh, really? And they set it up as a club, and then, uh, you know, so that's how they're making their money. Is okay. there's an entry fee, and then interestingly enough, the professional poker players would pay the the owner of this you know facility to play there. Really? Why? Because they could just. St- Take money from um, these amateurs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, it's like a speakeasy for for uh, for gambling. You know, like we used to have during Prohibition. But yeah, but you you go to places in Vegas. Well, a- any place now that has casinos, they mostly have cart. They have they have poker rooms, and these these guys that you're talking about, these professionals, they'll just sit there and wait for the wait for the idiots to come in, the drunks that are out there on vacation. Or think they're going to make some money playing poker, and they're just going to rake them for whatever they can, and knowing that eventually they're going to lose and make make stupid bets and get bluffed out or whatever. So yeah, it's a big part of the uh, the poker action for sure. I was reading recently. We were talking talking about gambling that when they moved from the slot machines that were mechanical, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with the arms, and they were just truly mechanical slot machines, and you try and get three sevens, and then you win or whatever. Uh, is that when they went to electronic spot machines, it really changed the game because what they figured out how to do was not to not to cheat necessarily. The, the, the odds were still the same. But what they would do is rather than have it be just three random numbers, they would program it to be like seven, seven, six. Mm. Like, oh, you you almost won. Yeah. And it would give this hit of dopamine to these, these people. They're like, oh, I almost won. And they would kept, Playing, they would play longer because there was this sort of feeling of almost winning, yeah. and it was just like, oh man, that's yeah. That's, and then there's yeah. the concept of in- intermittent reinforcement. Um, the, you know, the slot machines are designed to pay off at least small amounts on a regular basis because you know if you never won, you're not going to keep playing. They pay you a little bit at a time, and also just that closeness too, where you get the you know you get the you know the the cherries the cherries and then the last one it's almost a cherry oh you just missed it like you said yeah they they yeah. did a uh they did an experiment i think it was with either pigeons or rats i don't remember i think it was pigeons and they had this food bucket and this one would pay out uh at after a specific number of taps it would give food to the pigeon but another one would give more frequent random mm-hmm. taps but less food Overall, if you played them long term, you got more food with these, yeah, uh, sequenced uh, device, and the pigeons would always go to the random one, even though they got less food. It was this, like you said, this intermittent hit that they knew it was coming. It was less time between not getting fed. So it was, yeah, it was kind of interesting. Yeah, seeking seeking the big dump, um, the big the big payoff it motivates us. Um, absolutely absolutely yep yeah the the gambling gambling is uh something that i stay away from i played squares just with friends on the super bowl game Mm -hmm. just you know 50 bucks or something Uh, too much i was like now i'm now i'm like sitting here like biting my fingernails worried about whether or not i'm gonna the the score is gonna end with a, a six digit and a nine digit uh yeah, I was like, God, man, it, I'm I'm glad this is not easily accessible because, and I'm glad that I've learned enough about gambling to want to stay away from it. Because even just something friendly, I was like, 
Oh, I see. I see ten miles in, of gambling. Man. You always see those videos of those guys at you know after a game where they're like kicking the TV. You know, oh, they're they're mad, their team yeah. lost. Oh, guaranteed they had money on they the game. Bet. No yeah. one gets that you know no. energized over you know the Cowboys yeah, losing no, unless no. they had money on the game. Yeah, unless your mortgage payment. I remember one time, Jeff, uh, my dad and I went to Vegas, and he goes, "All right, well, this is our first time ever going to Vegas, and or my first time ever going to Vegas, rather." And he goes, okay, so whatever I, what I do is I always come and I, I just bet once because I, I want to allow myself to enjoy it, but I don't want to like get sucked in. So I set a limit. So I pull out, a, you know, a couple hundred bucks or whatever. And I go, I bet red or black on, on the roulette. Uh, roulette. <laughs> so he goes, he pulled, he pulled out like, you know. Enough to like ruin your day if you lost, but not, but not enough to like ruin your trip. Right. You know, so whatever that number was, it was like enough to bum you out if you lost it, but not enough to like, you know, be damaging really. So he goes, lays it down, puts all the chips on red. Wheel spins and it's black. He loses. We are not five steps away from this table before you turn to me and you go, should I do it again? And it's like, what? That was the whole lesson here. That's why I don't gamble. That's what that, that very story is why I don't gamble. That's exactly what I thought. So it actually did teach me the lesson because I was like, as you're in the process of telling me, this is how, these are all the steps I take to not allow myself to get sucked into it. I was like, man, you're still feeling this getting sucked in. And I said, no, we're leaving. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm glad I didn't do it. No, I don't even do that now. Thing. Last time I was there, I didn't eat. I didn't eat no, no, at, at all. Good. This evil. I control myself. You're a smart person for not because you can't. You can't beat them in in the short in the long term. And you you make it lucky in the short term, but the odds are against you. And uh, yeah, it's a, you're smart to stay away from that. Did you? What other organized crime work did you do while you were at the FBI? And you were you were doing the gambling. Yeah, other... so I, I I sat on the wires, uh, did, uh, did the bookie bust. Uh, we had uh, we had uh, uh, some some. Uh, I had just missed this. Uh, I got to Kansas City in 1988 as a brand new FBI agent, and they had just taken down an organized crime group that uh, the the big one in Kansas City that was uh, running the operation where they were skim, skimming money from Las Vegas casinos. I wasn't involved in that one, and and so organized crime was kind of winding down by the time I got there. Uh, after I did those couple things I mentioned, then I was mostly doing white collar crime and and corruption, and then that transitioned into some cyber crime work as well. Um, yeah, but if you've seen the movie Casino, um, right from a few years ago, that basically is uh, it includes that story about how the mob family was skimming money from Las Vegas casinos until they got until they got stupid about it, um, or it probably would have gone on for a lot a lot more time than that. But they were wait, what were they doing? Okay, so so uh, long story short, we had this real estate developer who was not connected with the mob, wanted to buy some casinos. No banks would give him conventional financing. Uh, so the Teamsters Fund out of Chicago, Jimmy Hoffa, that group uh, gave him money to to buy the casinos, but they they couldn't they couldn't uh, the mobsters that lent him the money couldn't be on paper as owners because that was against. You know, it's a law for someone with a criminal record to be tied to the mob to have ownership in a casino. So they used this guy basically okay. as the straw man. Um, they lent him the money, but they secretly controlled all the operations and they got their men into the cash count rooms and they were skimming off, you know, large sums of money every 
every night from the where the money was counted. And it went back to Kansas City and other cities where the mob had control uh, of these uh, casinos, uh, these these mobsters. And uh, yeah. And so basically, there was a big source of their money for, for many years. It went on for several years before they were having trouble with this skimming operation. Someone was actually skimming the skim. And so they called uh-huh. a big meeting in Kansas City at the mobster's house. They were going to have this meeting. And they, they decided that the la- at the last minute to have it at, the na- at a neighbor's house because they thought the FBI might be bugging the mobster's house, which they were. Uh, but we were able to get an informant to tell us the meeting place had changed. Uh, and then the FBI got a bug in the basement of the neighbor's house where they talked about the best ways to skim and the worst ways to skim and how to keep it from skimming the skim. And it filled up eight hours of tape on an FBI tape recorder. They just got the bug in there at the at the last minute. And uh, that was basically what broke the back of the mob in Kansas City uh, and in Las Vegas. And it gave a chance for the it gave a chance for the corporate mob to move it in Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> now it's, it's institutionalized. It's all you got Bubba Gum shrimp right there on the on the strip. It would never would have been like that when the mob was still in town. <laughs> <laughs> We've progressed, I guess. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So. so, Jeff, what would you say is your your biggest single decision making tip for business owners? Uh, it, as regard as it relates to cyber cyber stuff or. Um, yeah, just you know, from the stuff we've talked about, you know, yeah. communication, interrogation, body language, those types of things. Uh, well, first of all, the peop- I would I would try to employ some of these techniques in the people you hire. Never hire someone without putting physical eyes on them. Um, you know, and for small businesses, you can do that. I mean, large corporations they're they're hiring lots of people and they're doing it through different ways. But you know, I would say you got to meet people in person. You know, once you get somebody on board, it's very difficult to not have that person on board anymore without a lot of trouble. So know the people you're hiring, put eyes on them, talk to them, get a gut feeling for that person uh, that you'll be hiring and keep an eye on your finances. Uh, You trust, but verify. I can't tell you how many businesses have lost a ton of money because they trusted people to do too much without verifying it. They're a profitable business, money's coming in, lots of cash and, uh, you know, they didn't pay too much attention to, to, uh, to the, the, you know, the details. And they had people that were not only writing checks, but reconciling the checking account and basically stealing, you know, upwards of a million dollars in some of the cases I investigated. So always trust people, but verify it, do audits. People can prepare for audits, do surprise audits, have someone else do the books, you know, if you're a type of person where one person is doing all type of company where one person is doing all the books in a small business, you know, have somebody go in there and somebody else do it, you know, one day or one week. That type of thing would often is used to discover fraud. And you'd be surprised how many people have uh, been victimized by embezzlement schemes. And they'll say, I can't believe it. This person babysat for my children. I hired her uh, to become our bookkeeper and they end up stealing a million dollars. And I'm not, when I say that million, there's been two cases where it was over a million dollars, a small business, very successful, and they didn't even realize the money was gone. How can you not miss a million dollars? And in many cases, it was you know in the several hundred thousand dollars as well. So that would be my advice as well. Always check on people, know who you're hiring. And when it comes to cyber scams, be careful of links, attachments, and emails. Be, have good antivirus software. Do not ever wire transfer money to uh, anyone without verifying where that money is going. If you get an email 
that says from a vendor that says, we changed our bank account. Send your money for this outstanding invoice to this place instead of this place. How much times does that happen? How many times do people change bank accounts right before you're getting ready to pay an invoice? You know, that doesn't make sense. So always verify that as well. And then trade employees, train, talk about cybersecurity all the time. It's so important to keep as as top of mind awareness um, uh, because it's it's huge. Uh, the, the, The latest report just came out from the FTC that Americans uh, lost $10 billion to fraud last year. And that's just a reported crimes. $10 billion. First time wow. it's gone over into that and over the $10 billion mark. So uh, so those are just a few tips to to kind of be aware of what's happening out there. Um, thanks again for being here, Jeff. Where can people connect with you and the work that you're doing? Yeah. So just on my website, it's just my name, uh, Jeff Lanza. Uh, it's, it's the lanzagroup.com. So it'd be V-T-H-E-LanzaGroup.com or just Google my name, J-E-F-F-L-A-N-Z-A, speaker or FBI, and you'll come up with my website if you just want to Google me. All right. Jeff Lanza, thanks. Thanks, Jeff. You're welcome. My takeaway from talking with Jeff is around the body language discussion we had earlier on when he was talking about at points of heightened anxiety that we tend to close up to protect ourselves. We tend to have body movement that is protective, sort of bringing our neck down to protect our or head down to protect our neck, uh, covering up, uh, closing up. And what I, what I took from that is being aware that that's happening, that, that your anxiety level uh, is rising and that you will naturally start to do this. He made the comment around, we, we have a harder time controlling our body than our language. And so I, th- I think just being aware of that, that you're doing that, it's probably not helping the anxiety. It's probably making it worse. Uh, and so trying to relax when you have that feeling, when you notice you're covering up or closing up is to do the opposite and sort of release to maybe let that anxiety dissipate. Yeah. My biggest takeaway um just give people the space, give people that silence, and they'll fill in the gaps. So when you ask a question, you get an answer that's not exactly what you're looking for, or maybe you think might not be truthful, give someone that silent space and they'll let you know. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes not personalized advice.